0: Let me read Acts 2, 42 through 47. Very familiar words. Speaking of the early church and the Christians that comprised it, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. They devoted themselves to the prayers. And awe, or the fear of the Lord, came upon every soul. And many Wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together. And they had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You can take a seat. So if I look back on the history of the church, and not even the full history, if I look back on um, just even the last few centuries of, of church history, both in the West and in other parts of the world, there's a big component that I would say distinguishes, especially 25th, 21st century American Christianity from Christianity that is presently taking place in other parts of the world and Christianity that has historically taken place on this continent. Um, and I believe that there are many, many differences, some of them technological, some of them philosophical, some of them um, methodological, how we do church, but I'm talking about organic differences, and I think one of the things that's going to be reclaimed the closer we get to the return of Christ is gonna be born out of necessity in the American church, and it's gonna come because we're going to need each other more in the future than we have ever recognized our need for one another in the past. What is this difference I'm talking about? I'm talking about the rugged individualism of the modern American Christian versus the interdependence of Christians really throughout the church age and even in this country going back as, as few as 75 to 100 years ago. We are so individualistic now as a generation. Um, we are, in speaking primarily to people that are Americans, most of you in the room, Americans by birth, you've been raised here, we have been saturated with the, the philosophy of we can make it on our own. We, we've really been trained to look out for number one. Um, we have really hungered after, and there's something in us that admires the standout, the person who kind of Frank Sinatra's their way through the life. I did it my way. And they, they kind of go that way their whole life. And there's something in our hearts now that admire that person. I'm a basketball fan, and although... Um, it was a, a quick and, and pretty easy NBA Finals for the Warriors this year. One of the things, whether you like them or not, I think any objective person would admit that one man carried the Cleveland Cavaliers on his back the whole way. An individual, we got one fan on the second row yeah! Talking about LeBron James. Now think what you will about him, I don't care what you think about him, you shouldn't care what I think about him. I'm going to just tell you from a basketball standpoint, he carried the whole thing and we look at a guy like that and we're like, wow, he did it basically on his own. Now, the reality is that may be fine in sports, but you don't win championships on your own. Um, You you might have one of the greatest sluggers on your baseball team, but you're not going to win the World Series if that's all you've got. And so ultimately, whether it is a a, a sports team, whether it is one person in a family holding the whole thing together, whether it is a school or a business or a church, the rugged individualism and uh, the, the, the desire to just be your own island, it was never in the heart of God not for his people. We were never meant to do this journey on our own. Stretching a little further, we weren't even meant to do this journey on our own during the week, check back in with each other, high five, holy high fives in the sanctuary on Sunday, and then go right back to our individuality. The heart of God has always been that his, his children would do this life together because of the culture that we've been reared in and that we're living in now, we feel it very negotiable whether or not we really have to attach our lives to each other. As much as I love meeting with one another and what we do here on Sundays and Wednesdays and in the prayer room and at various times during the week, ultimately, even our meetings do not qualify us as doing life together. Because right now, let me tell you what's happening. There's several hundred people sitting down and one guy talking. And y'all aren't talking to each other, and I'm not letting you talk back to me other than to shout amen or shut up or something like that. Um, the reality is we're not really doing life together right now. As good as this is and as essential this is, there's got to be more. And So this issue of community, which is maybe an overused term in our day, but when we're speaking of community, we're talking about church, and we're not talking about the church building, but we're talking about the, the spiritual um, interconnected, weaving together of Christian life with Christian life with Christian life with Christian life. And so I want to talk to you about that today, and I I really want to challenge you on it. And there's so many different little components of this. I'm just going to have to pick a few. And I think if we really want to know what church looked like before man got his grubby hands all over it, we go back to Acts chapter 2, when they didn't have any money. They didn't have any buildings, and they didn't have any methodology, and they didn't have um, any church buildings. They didn't have any technology. They didn't have any, you know, structured programs. All of those things may have their place, but if you really want to look at what it can look like in certain elements and things that we need to regain, that's why I'm reading Acts chapter 2 this morning. So, let's go through these verses, and if you will just listen to God, God the Spirit speak to your heart about how you're connecting with believers this morning. That's really my goal is to bring you into a place where you're thinking and you're sensing what is the Lord saying about me, my family, how we're connecting to the larger body of Christ, And, and is it substantially connected or is it superficially connected? And if there's room to grow, let's do it together. So let's go back into that text. Look in verse number 42 in Acts 2, and let's see at the beginning, I mean, this is right after Pentecost, and now the Holy Spirit has come, He's birthed the church, they're empowered, and they're learning to do life together, but they've also given a a mission to advance the gospel. How does that look? And I I note, first of all, that they were maturing as a dedicated community. They were growing up. They weren't only growing broader as far as numerics, they were growing up together. What does it look like when a group of believers are maturing in their dedicated community? Well, you're going to be devoted. So it says that they devoted themselves to some things. And so let's go through some of the the disciplines and the delights of the church. Here are some of the disciplines. So immediately they tuned into the teaching. The Bible says they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. So this is before the written Word of God was complete, and so you've got a handful of apostles that are leading a rapidly expanding church, and they are receiving revelation from the Lord. They're also teaching the very things that Jesus taught to them while he was on earth. And so the the hub, the anchor of the church life was truth. Now, that's not to displace spirit. That's not to displace love, because we're going to touch on all of that. But the anchor, the thing that kept them all moving in the same direction, the guardrails, if you were, were, was the apostles' doctrine. Now, what's interesting is the apostles' doctrine is not something different than what you have in your Bible. That literally that verbal doctrine, that doctrine that was taught from mouth to ear in the first century, ultimately was um, systematized by the Holy Spirit through the writers. And that becomes our New Testament, the epistles that instruct us, the gospels that reveal Jesus Christ to us. Ultimately, the book of Revelation, which tells us the things that are to come. And so you've got the anchor of teaching in the church. Now, why is that in person uh, important? Friends, we need to remember that, that things in the kingdom are not always subjective, they're not always spontaneous, they're not always supernaturally, you know, awe-striking and wonder. A lot of that is in the kingdom, but sometimes it's actually this, we need to listen to what we are to believe according to the truth of God's word. And that way that we have the green light from the Spirit, but we're not all over the map because we have the guardrails of truth. And that's what they began to discipline themselves to do. I love the fact that the Word of God says that they, they um, devoted themselves to it. It wasn't incidental, it wasn't take it or leave it, when the apostles and the leaders were teaching, and ultimately those with prophetic gifting and teaching gifting, and they called the community together, the people were there, not because they felt like they had to be, not because they had to endure a sermon in order to get to the worship, but they were devoted to it, an inward heart posture to to tell them, oh, we need instruction for our souls if we're ever going to be the people that we're called to be. But not only uh, tuned into the teaching, but they lived in partnership. It's a very simple phrase in verse number 42. The apostles' teaching, yes, but also to the fellowship. Now that is a broad term, and it simply indicates that they were doing life together, that they would eat together, that they would go to market together, they would go to temple together, they would pray together, they would would weep together, they would rejoice together, they would sing together, they would uh, expand the gospel and, and witness together. And the key word of Acts chapter 2 and the key word of community, if I'm growing in community, if I am entering into God's plan for the church, then I am doing this life together with you. That I'm not on my own. That I I don't isolate myself. That I don't just come up with a highly religious, super spiritual sounding cliche of all I need is me and God. Well, you can say that, but you can't say that and attribute it to the Bible because the Bible never teaches you that. The Bible never says, all you need is God. The Bible does talk about God's grace being sufficient and that there are moments in life where you may feel like you have nothing else, but the philosophy of the Christian life is never, it's all me and God and nothing else or nobody else matters. You see, you're a strand in the tapestry that he's weaving, but he's weaving it together with other strands. And so we're not a singular thread in the kingdom. We are part of something larger. And that issue of fellowship means he's going to wrap you around somebody else's life. He's going to interconnect your family life with some other family life. He's going to interconnect community like us, interconnecting us with other faith communities in this area. Why? Because God is deeply pleased when we become the answer to the John 17 prayer where Jesus, uh, just shortly before his death, is saying to the Father, Father, this is what I want. I want all of my children, all of your children, all of my people, I want them to live in oneness, the same oneness that I have for you. And we can't do that at a distance. So what is God's antidote to that? God's antidote to our tendency to isolate and withdraw is that He calls us into fellowship with each other. Now, I'm going to come back to that, but let's go further into verse number 42. So they're dedicated to teaching. They're dedicated to life partnership. And they expressed humble humble devotion. Where do I see that? They, They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. That is a reference, most likely, to the Lord's Supper, to what we would call communion or the Lord's Supper today. It was the intentional time that they would humble themselves and remember Jesus. And so at least once once a month across this mission base, we have communion. We did it last Wednesday night at the end of the beginning of the month fast. On Wednesday, we break our fast at 6 p.m. over down the street in Collins Hill Road in the prayer room. We break the fast with communion where we take a time and we intentionally put everything else aside and we come just in the singular oneness that we have through Jesus Christ and we do what he said. He said, when you eat the bread and when you drink the cup, I want you to do one thing, only one command. I want you to intentionally remember me. And it it humbles us. You can't strut while you take communion. Nobody's bowed up throwing back the communion cup. Nobody's cavalier. Communion is a reverent and sober and yes, celebratory moment, but it is where we intentionally say, I am not the big shot. I am not the fixture around which my church or my community or or the kingdom orbits around. I am one who has been remarkably, unspeakably graced by God. My sins are purged through the offering of Jesus Christ. I am one with God through faith in his son. And in this moment, I'm going to humble myself and I am going to remember him. Uh, if you're wondering, no, we haven't figured out the best time to do church-wide communion, but we're not ignoring that. But I just want to say this, until that time appears on the church calendar, the first Wednesday of every month, the first Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, on that Wednesday uh, at the, uh, in the prayer room, we take communion together. And it's a beautiful time. What does it do? It just reminds us that we're all one. Our skin color may be different. Our political c- persuasions can be different. Some people are glad the warriors won. Other people are mourning over King James and his ultimate demise. That's fine. None of that stuff is what weaves us together. Our oneness is in Christ, and so we humble ourselves. The early church was dedicated to regularly humbling themselves via communion. The more we remember Jesus, the less impressed we are with ourselves. So they also not only expressed that humble devotion, but Billy preached on this uh, last time, and if you didn't hear the 24-7 prayer message, it's online on the website, but they were persistent in prayer. And so they had appointed times of prayer where they would come together, not just individualized, vertical, me and God only, but sometimes horizontal and vertical. In the emblem of the cross shape, they would get horizontal with each other, coming together at the hour of prayer up at the temple, and they would pray. So these are some of the disciplines. Now, a lot of people, and and I, I challenge you if this is where you are, a lot of people have actually bought into the falsehood that if it's disciplined, it's not spiritual. Listen, friends, if it's disciplined, it may not feel spontaneous, but not everything that is spiritual is spontaneous. The Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit, and he's unpredictable and he's uncontrollable. But it doesn't mean that he's any less God than God the Father and God the Son. And if you will read through your Old Testament, especially the Pentateuch, first five books, you're going to come away with a recognition, oh my goodness, my God is a God who loves order. He loves intentionality. And so when we're looking at this, I want you to understand, disciplines are good as a means unto something. What is that that we're going unto? Deeper intimacy with the Lord and deeper intimacy With each other and so to the degree that we plan community that we work towards community with one another that we offer opportunity for community to that degree that we say yes to all of that to the same degree will be our experience of oneness and intimacy with each other now before moving on let me just say this it's so important I'm gonna talk about home groups here in a moment Uh, pastor Dustin mentioned them in the uh, announcements this morning but it is impossible to establish relationships in this room on Sundays or Wednesdays when we all come together. It's impossible. As a matter of fact, if you're sitting in your chair right now and you're trying to establish a relationship with the person next to you, you're annoying the person behind you because this, this is the time of instruction. When we come together on Sundays, there's three things that I look for. Every single Sunday, three things that I look for. Same thing with Wednesday night, too. I look for celebration because Jesus is worthy to be celebrated. I look for instruction because rarely will we meet together where there isn't some biblical instruction. And then, ultimately, I look for revelation. So at the back end of celebration, worshiping God, yielding our hearts, experiencing his presence. And through instruction, God take us deeper into your understanding who you are. On the back end of it, it's revelation. And that revelation is God saying, now that you've celebrated, now that you've been instructed, I'm going to hit you with something that you can start doing now. Something that changes and shifts inside of you. Some new word that you get that will start expanding your comprehension and your experience with God. So while we're doing all of that, what we're not really doing is interconnecting with each other. There's got to be other forms for that. So when might that take place? Let's go further. Look into verse 43 with me if you still have your Bible open. Not only maturing as a dedicated community, but retaining wonder as an awestruck community. This, I'm so hungry for this, for this uh, house, for this mission base. We're not there yet. I'm going to go ahead and tell you this on verse 43. We're not there yet. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the the experience and the presence of God that is palpable, that not only is he omnipresent, I mean, he's all, where two or more are gathered, there he is in the midst. That's what I want to talk about. I'm talking about the presiding manifest presence of God on a continually sustained basis, not a flicker, not a surge, and then a withdrawal, but a sustained experience of the presence of God and his power. To the extent that nobody's saying, was God there today? Was that God or was that just good? And so I'm talking about this awestruck wonder. Here's here's the phrase that we're given. When we see this um, outwardly humbled position as Christians, look in verse 43. I don't love it in the ESV here. It says, all came upon every soul. It's not that that's inaccurate, but I just like the fear of the Lord. Came upon every soul. The fear of the Lord. When it's talking about awe, there, it's the Greek word phobos, from which we get a word phobia, which is connected to fear. Now, God the Father never wants us to be running from Him, afraid of what He might do, in a kind of a, like He's a cosmic terrorist or something out to get us. That's not the fear that I'm talking about. It is connected to awe, it's connected to the overwhelming sense of the enormity of the goodness and the holiness of God to where it wrecks you, to where it rattles you, to where you can't just be casual in that moment. Sometimes that happens via an inner move of the Holy Spirit. There are times where we'll be worshiping together or in private, and we'll get hit With the beauty or the enormity or the goodness or the power or the revelation of God, there's just too many words to describe how it might come to us. But what happens is we we sense this immediate reduction in who we are, and God becomes ginormous to us. And it just wrecks us to the point where sometimes you cannot stand. Sometimes you just have to lift your hands. I mean, even going back to my independent Baptist days, I remember a couple of these independent Baptist zealots We'd be in the middle of worship and one of them would take off their shoes and be circling the building. I'll never forget this. Let me tell you a story real quick. I never tell stories because I'm horrible at it. God help me with this one. I'm going to risk it. So I had been saved like two weeks and the church was holding a missions conference. And so my parents who had prayed for me for years and years to come out of the lifestyle I was living and the The sin and all of that stuff. And so I got saved. And so I said, hey, will y'all come to church with me? I want you to come to Meadow Baptist Church. This is where I'm at now. This is awesome. And so my Presbyterian dad, like big brain dad, deep theology dad. He was like, well, my kid used to be a drunk. Now he's asking me to come to church with him. Why not? So my dad comes. And it's on the Sunday where this place is filled with these zealous missionaries. So we're shoulder to shoulder on the pew. I mean, we are packed shoulder to shoulder. And my dad's there, and he's got his pad, notepad out, and his Bible out, Mm mm-hmm, mm-hmm, amen, amen. Am I allowed to say amen? Yeah, dad, say amen. Then all of a sudden, the Spirit moves. Yes, the Spirit moves in Baptist churches, for those of you that are skeptical. Yes, he does, amen. Charismatics do not have a corner on the market on the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit hits this missionary sitting right next to my dad. This guy's about 30, and he just starts getting filled, and he starts, I can hear it coming hallelujah, ha, hallelujah, Halle, hallelujah, hallelujah, And all of a sudden, he's stand, standing up on the floor at this point, standing up, hallelujah, He's just shouting all sorts of, the floor wasn't good enough. He stands on the pew, and he is screaming at the top of his lungs while my pastor, or some missionary is preaching, and my dad is just doing this. <laughs> what am I telling you all of this for? I'm just telling you, that every now and then it's good for us as believers to go ahead and give in to the case of can't help it. It's, it's not always spiritual to just kind of keep it contained. You're going to explode. Your ears are going to. Some fire is going to come out of here. Sometimes you just got to let it go. What was going on in the first century? Well, awe, signs, wonders, glorious mess was happening. The first century church was inhabited and dwelt and empowered by the Spirit of God in ways that still stun us when we read about it. But I'm going to tell you, though there was structure, though there was discipline, though there was order, when when the Lord really started swelling and moving, no human construct could contain what God was going to do. So what does that look like a little bit? Well, first of all, again, they were outwardly humbled. The fear of the Lord was hitting them. God was doing such things that It was not only hitting the church, it was hitting those outside of the church. You can read about Ananias and Sapphira and how God took care of some business there that was unpleasant. When word about that got out, the whole community was like, we don't want to hang out with the Christians because their God doesn't play. I mean, they were, lit. people were actually, the fear of God was hitting. But it's not only that, the fear of the Lord, let me just give you a couple of things very quickly. What about the fear of the Lord? Well, listen, the fear of the Lord is a good thing. It's it's a really really good thing, and it, it, if we're not careful, it's a rapidly vanishing commodity in in the in the modern church. But w- when you look at 1 John two three, the Bible says this: We know that we know God when we keep His commandments. That keeping His commandments indicates a heart posture of fearing the Lord. You don't want to play around with God. He's an awesome Papa, but man, an awesome Papa will discipline disobedient kids. Yeah, he still does that. And so the the the. Reality is the fear of the Lord lets us know that we're His. The fear of the Lord produces assurance. When we're walking in obedience and honor of the Lord, our hearts are galvanized in confidence that God is for us, that we are with Him and He is with us. But the fear of the Lord also produces wisdom, Psalm 111.10. Listen, this is the beginning of wisdom, the fear of God, the awe of God, the honor of God, the the Old Testament King James, the terror of the Lord. I mean, all of that stuff, it, it produces wisdom in you. Because you're not going to act in recklessness because you actually care about pleasing the Lord. And therefore, you're, you're seeking wisdom and you're waiting on wisdom and you're operating on wisdom and you're not leaning to your own understanding. It's the fear of the Lord that begins that process in us. By the way, Ephesians chapter number five speaks of community in the fear of the Lord. The Bible says that we are to submit ourselves one to another in the fear of the Lord. That literally, the way we interact with each other in community, in humility, and preferring others above ourselves, and not stamping our foot, stuffing our hands in our pockets, being upset that we don't always get our way, the, the reason why we don't do that is because we honor the Lord, we fear the Lord. And it's actually, the, the command is that we submit ourselves to one another as unto the Lord. And then when it comes to practical holiness, 2 Corinthians 7, 1, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. Let me, let me give you this. Sometimes sanctification, the process of sanctification, growing in holiness and Christ-likeness, your flesh will never cooperate with that. You know that, right? You cannot drum up consistent holiness by just trying to squeeze it out in some fleshly determination. But when we, we find those weak moments, I, I just like to say this from time to time because I think it helps a few people, even at the risk of it making me look less than holy. There are times in the moment where I'm being faced with a temptation. Let it be whatever your temptation is. And in the moment, I can't find the love for Christ that will motivate me in that moment not to give in to the temptation. But the fear of the Lord is always there. Sometimes I would say, Jesus, I love you so much, I'm not even bothered by this thing that the devil's wagging in front of my face do not even bother me because I, my son was telling me yesterday we were talking about personal holiness and temptations that are unique to men in the kingdom and land is 12. And he's like, Dad, right now I'm just telling you, uh, thank you, but right now I'm just so in love with Jesus that that stuff's not even bothering me. And I'm like, hallelujah, son. I said, I'm like, file this then. Because on the days where your love level might not be as high as it is right now, let the fear of the Lord cause you to say no to sin. You say, well, Jeff, that doesn't sound spiritual. Well, it does to me. It's biblical. Perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. That's part of a community being hit with the wonder of God and the awe of God. It's so practical sometimes we just kind of skim over it. So they were outwardly humbled. Everybody was impressed and overwhelmed and undone by God. It wasn't about Peter. It wasn't about James. It wasn't about John. It wasn't about all the others that were doing the signs and the wonders. Everybody was saying, God, God, the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit. And The second part of that is that the inward humility and the inward awe manifested itself in greater uh, measure because, through outward power. Verse 43, many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles, Now, mark it down. At the beginning of the church, most of the signs and wonders that were taking place were being done through the hands of the apostles. Now, by the time Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, he's talking about miracles, healings, and signs and wonders being done through the hands of of church, the, the body of Christ. But at the beginning, it was primarily the apostles. But I like the fact that the Holy Spirit just kind of slips this in there. Many signs and wonders were being done i'm going to ask you some practical questions does anybody believe that god just kind of shelved that aspect of ministry god's heart changed god's like yeah i did that for a little bit but i don't do that anymore i used to believe that i was trained that those miracles had ceased that god used to do them god will do them again at the end of the age but right now it's about something different i think one of the things that that's done in the american church by the way it was especially susceptible to this we need to be a community that not only signs off on the, the theological reality of signs and wonders and miracles, we need to expect them. We need to seek the hand of the Lord to do above and beyond what is natural. And so when, when listen, I'm going to tell you if there's a, there's a pivot point for me on this thing, this is it. I am, Lord knows my heart in this, please, I hope you do too. I am so sick and tired of preaching about signs, wonders, and miracles and not seeing them. I am grieved in my spirit about it. And, and, and listen, what a, what a utensil that the enemy uses. The enemy uses it and, and the, the world, the unbelieving world. Well, where's your signs and miracles? Where's your, where's your resurrections? Where's your healings? Where's your uh, you know, creative miracles? Where's your natural amplification, uh, supernatural amplification of the power of God? Where is it? And sometimes me and you, we're looking to each other in community saying, do you have an answer for them? I don't have an answer. Do you have an answer? And what do we need to do as community? As community, we've got to press into the Lord and say, Lord, we love each other and we love you and we love everything that you've given us the ability to do, but God, we want to experience in this unbelieving world needs to see you do through us what we could never do on our own. And so don't, don't get content with an absence of the miraculous. Don't be satisfied with a status quo flicker of a miracle thing here or there listen I want I I had bronchitis right before we went on vacation what did we do we prayed what did I do it anointed with oil we did all of that but ultimately guess what I had to do I went to the doctor and he gave me a Z-pack, and I was fine the next day so I was glad to not be sick on vacation but there were moments I was saying why did I have to go to the doctor for bronchitis and but here's the thing it's just kind of what we do I'm not against the doctor if you got a headache take an Advil I'm not gonna judge you amen but the reality is, is headaches and, and, and aches and things like that, I think we see a fair amount of those being dealt with by the Lord through laying on of hands and prayer. Most of the people I've prayed for that had cancer went to heaven. Why aren't we seeing more of that? I believe because as community, we have room to grow and improve on expectation and the seeking of these things. Friends, listen, I don't know how it all works. God will tell us when we get to heaven. But there is something about a body of believers pressing into God in a unified direction for something that only he can do. And when it becomes so purposeful in us, And our passions can't be expressed through status quo praying, status quo church, status quo whatever. But we are burgeoning and and bulging and bursting with this desire for God to be in our generation, the God he was to Moses and Abraham and David and Paul and Peter. Where is that God of the Bible? Friends, I'm going to tell you, he's still sitting on his throne in heaven. He may be waiting for a community of believers to call upon him without ceasing. So let me get down to verse 44 and 45. Because ultimately, I want to get back to some of the practical aspects about us doing life together as a local church, a missions base. Those terms are used interchangeably. You know who we are, who we're becoming. Generosity is part of it. No, I'm not going to preach long on giving this morning. I am going to preach on the heart that is either the, um, the wellspring of giving or the brick wall against giving it's it's a heart issue for me it's rarely a money issue it's almost always a heart issue but this was part of the early church who by the way for the most part were impoverished disowned disaffected marginalized rejected cast out lost property a lot of them lost their homes and yet they're held up before us as some of the most joyfully generous people that we see anywhere in scripture so what does it look like Well, first of all, verse 44 is the key. If this doesn't happen in our lives, none of the rest of it can ever happen. They first gave themselves. What does the scripture say? All who believed, that's the the Christians, that's the church, they were together. They were together. They had all things in common. This is not primarily about pooling our resources. This is really about the fact that Their conversion, their growing reality of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, their deepening appetite for the apostles' doctrine and teaching, their love that was growing as they broke bread together, not only the bread of uh, communion, but the bread of fellowship and sharing meals. They were praying together. The key word for the church, friends, is together. Together together. Do you know it's possible to so go after the Lord Jesus that if you're not careful you'll think the highest calling in your life is to get so vertically oriented that you're unaware anymore of the horizontal. That's a danger in our pursuit. We want both. We I listen, I want to be regularly consumed with the, the presence, the holiness, and the personhood of Jesus Christ. But if I am, let me tell you what the byproduct's going to be. If I am fully consumed by who he is, it is impossible for me not to love what he loves. Right. And he loves his bride. He loves people. And so they're doing life together. And the end result of that is they started saying, What I have is not just for my individual consumption. There is no American dream in the book of Acts. It's not there, nor anything like it, not by believers anyway. This runs counterintuitive to everything you've been kind of immersed in since you've been in this country, whether born here or moved here. It's why people clamor to get into this country. Why? Because the American dream pulses with opportunity, with with wealth, with luxury, with relief, with ease. That's why people want to come here. And yet, if we are not careful, we can, as believers, subconsciously or unconsciously, be living daily towards the American dream at the expense of the gospel of Jesus Christ in and through our lives. It is possible. Matter of fact, it's not only possible, forgive me, I'm just going to channel my inner pessimist for a moment. It's epidemic. It's epidemic. In the American church, it is so often i got to get my trajectory set, i got to get my finances structured, i got to get my temporal anchors laid down so I'm stable, and when I get that, God, you're going to get everything you want from me, let me just take care of me first, which is the exact opposite of take up your cross daily and die if you want to be my disciple, but here's the thing, We can't do any of that on our own. We have to do it together. So when one of you is walking so closely with the Lord and word gets back to me that so-and-so has entered into a level of consecration, sacrifice, and generosity that they didn't want anybody to know about, but you know it's church. We find out everything around here because that's a spiritual gift for some. So it's not always bad news that gets back to you. Sometimes it's the good stuff and you hear about somebody really going after it and you're like, "Man, they're doing generosity. I want that. I want to be a part of that aspect of this community." And it's contagious. And so when we see here they were they were believers, they were together and they had all things common. Why? They first gave themselves. Let me just ask you. Have you died yet? Have you died more than once? Are you dying today because every day that I'm not dying under myself under this world under the flesh under less unto dying under lesser loyalties if I'm not regularly evaluating and committing and crucifying my flesh then it's alive and ultimately that living creature that I failed to crucify starts taking ownership of my life trajectory and so what do we do we have to present ourselves I'm glad you got saved but if that's the last time you presented yourself to God you are whacked right now and, and, and so listen I want you to be saved if you're here today and you've never committed your life to Jesus Christ I'm gonna tell you he'll save you right here right now this morning he will deliver you he will save you he will inhabit the temple of your body he will become your Lord and Savior and that's where it all begins That's not the termination point. That's the origination point. And so when we continue to walk that out, some of y'all are looking at me like, I've never heard of such things. Well, you need to hear them then. Because friends, listen, we, we got to die daily. I mean, your flesh is no different than mine. Flesh is flesh. Flesh begets flesh. And so if we don't crucify those things then they tend to take over but when we do crucify them and we're doing life with others that are crucifying themselves and dying daily and taking up their cross and following jesus in heartfelt motivated discipleship not legalism not not being afraid of scary god in that sense but because we know his plan is best and we have aligned ourselves with it when we're doing that together as community glorious things happen it's going to have to take place here. It's, it, we, listen, we want the miracles. We want the signs. We want the wonders. We want the mass salvations. We want revival. We want to tear down demonic strongholds. We want an end to racism and man's religion. We, we want to see the, the blossoming of children into a generation of Nazarites that, that transform the fabric of the American culture. We want all of that, but it's not going to happen until we are dying together to all of those things that resist what I just described. So they gave their substance, verse 45. They did end up selling their possessions, they sold their belongings, and they distributed the proceeds to all. It was all voluntary. There was no big shot walking around saying, hey, that chariot over there, it looks like it's got new rims on it, I'm going to be taking that chariot, we're going to sell it, we're going to feed the widows. There was no strong-arming by the leaders. Everything that was done in giving was voluntary. You had to be truthful about it as Ananias and Sapphira would learn Down, Ananias and Sapphira did not sin by keeping back part of their offering in the sense of not giving all. They sinned by pretending that they had given it all. They lied to the Holy Spirit according to the Word of God. So it's not about people coming and checking your tithing record. Listen, you ought to give. If you're saved and you're part of this assembly, we entered into covenant together to be givers. I I don't have anything to do with the finances here. You give more, I don't get more. So I'm I'm just telling you as your brother and as your pastor, generosity is, is part of who God is. And so if God is in us, we're going to be generous. And when we do it as a community, do you know right now that... Everything that we need to do on this missions base and across the seas with overseas missions and here locally, everything that we currently could conceive of is able to be paid for today. Today, by the people that are already here. Every single bit of it. But what has to hit us? A release, a death to self, and a welcoming of the generous God, God the Spirit, working through us to become like Jesus is, who was a giver. And so when we see that as a community, amazing things take place. And all of this is motivated by love and compassion. Look at the end of verse 45. They did it according to the need. Just according to the need. It wasn't overly mystical. It's like if Johan down the street lost his job because he converted to Christ and his family's hungry, you know, Abigail and Enoch would feed Johan and his family out of their own store. Didn't need a move, didn't need a second, didn't need a congregational vote, didn't need to trumpet. Hey, look at us, we are giving, look at our, you know. It, it wasn't any of that. It was just love. And they saw the need. Occasionally in this house, you're going to hear of a need. Let me tell you, consider, first of all, does God want you to meet that need? And that's why he let you hear it. If you don't have the ability to hear it, maybe you mention it to some people that you know that might hear it. One of the most glorious things that happened years ago, uh and a different season of ministry was when I started recognizing people in the congregation were meeting the needs because back in those days, everything came to the pastor's desk. And I realized, oh, man, that, that teaching on first fruits and generosity, it's taken root. Why? Because they're not asking the pastor what to do. They're just meeting the needs. I'll give you this. It wasn't planned, but the Holy Spirit's bringing it. Right now, um, the Diggs family, you know, Jesse and Rochelle traveling uh, right back here on furlough, uh, their, their truck has major needs, and I just became aware of it over the weekend. There's probably somebody in the congregation who could say, say to us afterwards, Jeff, tell us what it is, and we'll help meet that need. If that's you, listen, it is that simple sometimes. Jesse and Rochelle didn't ask me to say it, but I know that there's a need there. And so it's literally that unspectacular as far as we see it, and God looks at it, and he says, she's becoming like my son. He's becoming like my son. So let's get down to the very end, Okay. Verses 46 and 47. This is the goal for us. We're moving forward. I want us to advance. Billy wants us to advance. Dustin wants us to advance. Gabe wants us to advance. The pastoral leadership team and those that we serve with, all the way into you, I already know you want this. What am I talking about? Advancing as a joyful community. Joyful. How many of you know that advancing the gospel, Christian ministry, is meant to be difficult work? It's difficult. It doesn't mean it's impossible. It doesn't mean it's not fulfilling, but it's hard. And let me tell you why. Because the devil and every demon in existence fights that work more than they fight anything else. You realize that the devil is not fighting the world system. It's his. He already owns it. He's got that thing on cruise control. 100% of the enemy's attention is how do we stop the church from glorifying the one we crucified? That's the whole purpose of the devil and the his whole hellish crew just coming against the church to stop us from manifesting the glory of Jesus, contending for revival, seeing a breakout of the power of God in our generation. So he fights it. That's why ministry's hard. Some of you are in the in the you're kind of like in the valley of your ministry and you're 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 struggling and, you're, and you're, you're, you're like, man, I don't know if I can do this anymore, and you're feeling it. It's getting in your bones. It's like you got, you got briars in your, in your capillaries. It's just really hard right now. It's gonna be. It, it, in some measure, we should rightfully expect resistance in all that we're doing for the glory of God. Chad Norris said one time, if you're walking for the glory of Jesus and you're not bumping into the devil along the way, it's probably because you two are walking in the same direction. <laughs> Chad's not known for his subtlety, by the way. It's going to be hard. Hard is not synonymous with bad. It's not. It's not a same word. Hard sometimes is gloriously good. The cross of Jesus Christ, was it hard? Was it good? It was good. He did it for the joy set before him. That's what we're talking about, advancing in joy. What does that look like? Verse 46, day by day, they attended the temple together. There's the word again, together, 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 together. Listen, the house of worship, If we can make the parallel application. This is a place where we're gonna continue to come. It's so funny, I had this message being prepared a couple of weeks ago, and then last week heard a message stressing the same thing. A lot of people are now starting to buy in. It's either home church, house church, or temple. Oikos or temple. Oikos is simply a Greek word that defines home or a family unit or a small group of people coming together in a a collective way. Oikos, meeting in the homes. That's a glorious thing. It's straight from the Lord. For the first three centuries of church history, they didn't have a church building. They would would get together in the synagogues, but those were still synagogues. They were the places where Hebrews worship. They would go and present Messiah, Jesus as Messiah, in the synagogues, and a lot of times it didn't end well. But the first church buildings didn't appear for the first couple of centuries of um, church history. So they met in homes. And by the way, the church toppled the Roman Empire not through violence, not through military but through an absolute radical shifting of one kingdom identity, Rome, and that being overwhelmed by the kingdom of love, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was done through home meetings primarily. Oikos is great. Why do we have home ministry, house church here at Newbridge? For the very reasons I've been talking about. You need to connect with people in the body of Christ. I need to connect with people in the body of Christ. We can't do it in this big old room. We can't even do it while we're running and gunning for the Lord. Look, I, I love fellowshipping in ministry, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about heart connection, life connection, getting to know people. A lot of you are like me, your, your natural inclination. Mine was because I experienced abandonment and rejection as a child. So I learned from age four, really uh, from age nine to age 24, I learned to be afraid of people, don't get close, because if you get close, they hurt you and they leave you. And, and that's a lot of folks in the room. But we learned poorly. We, we, we learned the wrong thing because that's not the way it is in the economy of God. The economy of God is is that you press into people, that you li- you live with people, that you risk it, that you make yourself vulnerable, that you put yourself out there again. You say, Jeff, but I, I might get hurt. Now, let me promise you something. Eventually, you will get hurt. You will. And if you're, you're, But you're also going to not only get hurt from time to time, you're going to get really, really loved really, really validated, really, really appreciated, really, really um, unpacked and unfolded because God has wired you, child of God, that it is impossible for you to step into your full destiny in isolation. And so what does he do? He says, I want want you to go and I want you to connect to other broken, hurt, and vulnerable people. And I want you to stay there for a bit and you're gonna find out that it's actually safe and it's actually okay. And it comes as a package deal. You're going to get disappointed. You're going to get offended. In our day and age, it's like the worst thing that could ever happen to a person is being offended. (gasps) You've offended me. Well, I'm offended that you're offended. Well, we're both offended. Third guy in the room, I'm offended at both of you. So we live in a world of hyper-offense. Can I say this? I'm going to, so whether you give me permission, we just need to get over ourselves. Some of this stuff is just getting ridiculous. (laughs) You're gonna get offended. The key is: is there enough Jesus in you not to stay offended? You're gonna get offended. Bunch of offense going around. The world stinks. Okay, that's just a, that's the aroma of the world. You walk in it, it's gonna get on you. Amen. But the, you don't have to stay that thing. You, the things we lose by self-preservation and not doing community, but living in isolation. Home groups provide a forum, by the way, at Newbridge Church for ministry. If a need arises in your life, I can promise you something. The four pastors probably won't know about it. And if you're not connected to a home group, you're going to have a hard time receiving the ministry. I believe there's somewhere between 1,000 and 1,200 people that are moving through here every single month as far as attending or participating in ministries. And there, it's, it's not even reasonable that, that a pastoral team or even those that are working with us would be able to know every need and meet every need. Well, what, what do we do? Well, in, in home groups, you're making relationships. So it doesn't even feel like ministry. It feels like I'm going to see my friend in the hospital. Or I'm, or we're going to help our friend with this financial need. Or we're going to collectively offer wisdom to a predicament that has happened to this other person in our home group. Home groups are not only spiritual, they're intensely practical. And here's one thing. I, I'm just, this, is, this is just so plain that you'll miss it if you're not careful. Some of you just need a friend. I mean, I'm, I'm not kidding. Some of you are holy, you're God-centered, you love the Lord, you love the Word of God, you're a spirit-filled, tongue-talking, prophesying, you know, miracle-raising or miracle-doing, whatever, I was on a roll, it left me. <laughs> you're, you're, you're one of those guys, but man, you, you, when it comes to friends, you're like, you've brought strange things to my ears today, friends. What are friends? Listen, sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is go to a Gwinnett-Stripers game with somebody you're just getting to know. And, you know, you don't have prayer behind the dugout. You, you're, you're not calling down fire on the other team. You're just, you're just going to a ball game. Say, well, Jeff, that doesn't, sound, that doesn't sound spiritual. Well, let me just say, that's why you need a friend. I'm, I'm not even being sarcastic. I'm just saying those kind of relationships, and you, it's so difficult to make those outside of intentional community. There was joy in the believers' homes. They were breaking bread in their homes. They were eating. They got, they got together, and they there's something across every culture that when you eat with somebody, there's a connection there. I remember eating in Tanzania with Africans, a big makeshift grill. What time is it? They were a big makeshift grill, and they're just throwing whole chickens on, they were dead, but they were throwing whole <laughs> chickens on, on, on the grill. And so then they're, when it's done, they're plucking off feathers or ripping off meat, handing me meat in their hand. I'm just, come on. You know, and, and then here's something funny. They eat the bones. Now, I didn't have that kind of close fellowship with them. I, I wouldn't go eat a chicken bone. But my point being is there was something in those meals where I, I looked across and I'm talking to a guy who's maybe my age and living in a completely different world and there's something in our hearts and we're saying brother to brother, friend to friend. They were breaking bread in each other's homes. By the way, if you're, if you're part of a home group, I encourage you, and you don't have to have food at all of them, but it doesn't hurt, just to, just to relax. Get some guacamole in that thing, man, see what happens. Yeah. Joy in their hearts. They received their food with gladness and generous hearts. Do you see what's happening? All of these simple things of community are are converging together for for a a purpose that we're going to see in just about three minutes, and I'm going to be done. They were receiving their food with glad and generous hearts, so they received, but they were generous in that they gave. So it was reciprocated. Nobody was like, man, I'm always the giver. And there was nobody that got away or wanted the big old person always being the taker. It was both receiving and being generous. Some of you know how to give, but you don't know how to receive. And we rob one another when we don't receive other people's ministry, other people's affirmation, other people's encouragement, other people's um, um, even gifts to us. It's both. God is glorified in both the giving and receiving. And in community, there, should, there will be always a process of in and out. One day you're on the receiving end, one day you're on the giving end, but nobody's keeping score. Why? Because you're being motivated by generosity and love. And this is happening, by the way, in the context of homes here. And they were praising God and having favor with all of, all of the people, so there was joy in the community. The goodness that happens in home church, house church, whatever you want to call them, it eventually, if it's really authentic and organic and New Testament and the Holy Spirit's in the mix over a sustained period of time, eventually it spills out of that home into the community. And so, friends, listen, it is getting harder and harder to get people to come to a church building on Sunday. But there are loads of people that will never come to a church building on Sunday. But they see the cars in the street once a month at a home group. And that opens up a door of opportunity. You can say to them, yeah, i am just meet with some of the people that uh, go to our church. You want to come over? You want to have some barbecue? You want to hang out with us? We meet on Friday night, blah, blah, blah. And you just fill it. And all of a sudden, what's going on in the home group is spilling out into the neighborhoods, spilling out into the communities. I'm telling you, It works. So they were beginning to have favor with the people. Worship team, please come on up. And ultimately, there was joy in their witness. All of this stuff we're talking about that just seems kind of—I don't know—optional. Yeah, meeting with people else. I don't know, I man. I'm a church guy. I'm a temple guy. Oikos thing—that's kind of mm, that's for the millennials, you know. That's kind of skinny jeans kind of thing and. Listen, one of the most solid home groups in this house is primarily populated by those that are older Gen Xers, maybe even baby boomers. We've got some that are boomers. Um, For all the millennials and stuff, let me just say this. Uh, There's something about the awareness and the wisdom in the older generation's hearts that this is not a stretch for them. This is so crystal clear to older generations of Christians because that's what they used to do. What we lost, we need to reclaim. And so the Bible says, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. (laughs) It's interesting that that portion of Scripture closes. It's all about community, 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 community. What they're doing together, and the result is salvations among the unbelievers. Isn't it something? that when we do life together and we strengthen each other intentionally in life, the effect of it is that when we walk out into the communities, we're carrying something different. There's something on us that magnetizes an unbelieving culture, a skeptical culture. Most people are skeptical of your pastors, not because of anything we've done, but because of the, the climate in our culture. And so they don't really care what your pastors have to say. But when the fragrance of Jesus is coming off of you in the neighborhood and in the home groups, and you just risk it and say to your neighbor three doors down, hey, you want to stop by this weekend? I got some friends coming over. And we just eat, we talk a little bit about spiritual things. Hey, come on over. Listen, you're actually just being kind and friendly and hospitable. Let me give you this, and I am done. Watch, I'm not even going back. It's closed. On May 31st, the 2018 National Spelling Bee was won by a 14-year-old eighth-grade girl from Texas. Out of the hundreds upon hundreds of words that had taken place among the, the 512 contestants over those three days, it got down to the final word. Do you know what the final word was that won her the spelling bee this year? Koinonia. So some of you don't know what koinonia means it's it's our word nobody uses koinonia, but christians it's a greek term that is now part of the american language what does it mean community partnership togetherness fellowship among christians and i when billy actually told me this on friday night and i heard that and i'm like god took the national spelling bee took a word from the kingdom made that the winning word. I guarantee you nobody knows what that word means. So countless people are saying, what's a koinonia? Hey, Google koinonia. And when they Google koinonia, it comes up, a community of fellowship and partnership among Christians through Jesus Christ. (laughs) Listen, he's interested in us doing this together. He wants it held before the eyes of an unbelieving generation, not just through a spelling bee. That's cool, but really, that's not the primary messengers we are. So friends, New Bridge, IHOP Atlanta Mission Base. This is part of who we are, and this is what we're going to do. Get involved. When you leave today, if you're not in a home group, walk out these double doors, go to the information wall, And you're going to find 14 or 15 existing home groups that you can participate in. And there will be more. Some of you are called to host a home group. You don't want to lead it, but you want to host it. There's a process for that. Some of you want to lead one, but you don't want to host it in your home. There's a process for that. You see me. You see Dustin Pennington. You can talk to Gabe Palmer or Billy. We'll help you do this. But this is a rhema word. This is now. This is something that the Lord is offering us, and glorious things are going to come for it. Will you stand to your feet?